We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18, uh, 1, 18 through 25 this morning, as we look at the coming of Jesus Christ as our Savior. So as is the tradition of our church, I would ask for you to please stand to honor the Lord as we read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right. Well, this morning we begin in verse 18 with one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith, which is the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. The Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest formulation of basic Christian belief, states it this way, conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is the initial supernatural work that commences the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is a supernatural work. If you've been around this church long, you know this word. I talk about it often because it is essential for biblical Christian belief that we accept by faith the supernatural working of God in the world. What does that mean? It means that God, outside the natural order of this world, acting upon the world to do His will, something that is not according to the normal order of things. And a virgin conceiving a child is not a natural thing. It is a supernatural thing. It is something that Almighty God has to intervene in the world to cause to happen. And so this is a one-time event. It has never happened before in the history of the world and never will happen again in the history of the world. It is something that is unique to Jesus Christ and His coming. And so there's two points that I want us to to understand or grasp about the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. And first of all, that it is of God. And this is what it means for it to be supernatural, that this conception is a work of the Lord. And this is why Joseph struggled with it. He was justified in struggling with this. What is happening here? How can anyone be with child without uh, having normal relations? And so this struggle that Joseph had continues down to our day when people look at this and they say, what is going on here? This is not possible because this is not a natural thing. There was a great struggle with this in Christian theological writing at the turn of the century between the 19th and the 20th century. There was a whole stream of liberal theological writers coming out of Germany that just would not accept this idea of the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. 
One of these theologians wrote, uh, a man named Adolf von Harnack wrote and was very influential in writing about Christianity as two parts, one being a husk that sort of surrounds it and then a kernel of truth that's somewhere in the Bible. And that the husk is all about these miracles and supernatural things that have been encrusted onto the kernel of truth, which is really the moral nature of Jesus Christ and the things that we look at that the lost world can look at Jesus and admire about his person, that he was kind and that he was merciful and that he was sympathetic, that all these other things, we have to strip away all this stuff so we don't lose sight of the, the real Jesus underneath. And then there was Rudolf Bultmann, who argued basically the same thing, and he argued for the demythologizing of Christianity, that stories like this are all myth, and that to get to the, the true nature of moral Christianity, we need to strip away all these myths and all these supernatural, ridiculous stories in order to get down to who Jesus really was. And of course, when you strip away all the work of God from the Bible and get down to only the work of man, you no longer have a work of God. You only have a work of man. And you end up with men teaching other people how it is that they might try to save themselves through moral working. And you have no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ, God working to save man, but you have man working to save himself. And there is no longer good news in that. For there is no salvation in human morality. And so, the virgin conception is a supernatural work of God, and you can't get around it. And if you will not accept this, you cannot accept anything else that happens in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because the second point about the virgin conception of Jesus Christ is theologically, what does it mean? And it means that Jesus is born without sin. And that is radically important when we look at what is Jesus doing in his ministry. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. Who is the first Adam? Well, it's Adam from Genesis. It's the first Adam. He who falls in sin, and through him and through the lineage of mankind, sin is passed down from generation to generation to generation to where each and every one of us, you and I, were born into sin because we were born with a sin nature that we inherited from our fathers. And the scriptures say that it's passed down in an unbroken line to our day. So how can we possibly break an unbroken line of sin and death and corruption in the world? Well, the only way to do that is to break that federal headship line by having someone that has no earthly father. And that's what happens here. I'm going to read to us from Romans chapter 5. Verses 18 through 21, this is just one place in the Bible that speaks very clearly about this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin is increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the line of inherited sin and death is broken in Jesus. Whereas death came through the disobedience of one man, life comes through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As Peter Vermigli writes, the womb of the Virgin Mary became the divine furnace from which the Holy Spirit 
out of sanctified flesh and blood, drew that body destined to be the obedient servant of no less a noble soul. Thus, none of the defects of fallen Adam were transmitted to Christ. Though the bodies of both were produced in a similar way, our first father was miraculously formed from the earth without the seed of man. But by the power of God, so was the second Adam. And so Jesus is a new beginning. Whereas Adam failed, Christ will not fail. Where Adam fell in sin, Jesus would be, would be tempted but would never fall in sin and would begin in perfection and live on in holiness that he might be our sacrifice for sin. And so this is very important to understand. In verse 19, though, we get on to Joseph's struggle because he sees Mary with child and does not know any of this. And he could not be expected to understand this from his perspective. And so God has to tell him what is going on as he is telling us through his word now what is going on so that we don't misunderstand what is happening. And so in verse 19, it says this, her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is a great character of the Bible that is often neglected as, a, as an example of godliness as a husband and as a father. And so what we see here in Joseph is that he's not hasty. He's not a hothead. He doesn't immediately go out and divorce her. And he considers what is happening here because he loves Mary and this is out of character for Mary. This doesn't make any sense. He can't wrap his mind around this because this is not who she is. And so it requires a divine explanation, which is given to him in verse 20. Whereas an angel appeared to Mary before her, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream to explain to him what is going on. In the first part of the dream, the angel addresses Joseph as Joseph, the son of David. And this is important. If you look back just to the, the previous verses of this chapter from verse 1 down to verse 17, you have a genealogy. And often we skip right over those genealogies, but those genealogies are there for a reason. And what is this genealogy here for? It's here to show the unbroken line from Abraham to David and from David to Joseph that Joseph is in fact the direct descendant of David. And this is all to fulfill prophecy, that there would be someone from the line of David. And so though Joseph is Jesus's earthly father, he is the one to fulfill this prophetic line. And so Joseph is addressed as the son of David. And so there are five things that I'd like for us to see about Joseph's dream, what it is that the angel reveals to Joseph about Jesus and his ministry. So the first thing that the angel reveals to Joseph is that he should not be afraid to take Mary as his wife. This is just simple. There's, listen, there's nothing wrong here, Joseph. Take Mary as your wife. She is the virtuous and pure and lovely woman that you think that she is. So don't worry about that. Take her as your wife. And we're going to see that he does. He obeys the Lord in this. The second thing is that Mary is going to bear a son. And in our day and age, we have ultrasounds and things and know what the sex of the child is going to be long beforehand. But back then, nobody knew what the sex of the child was going to be prior to birth. And so this is a revelation that this is going to be a son. You are going to bear a son. And, you know, it's amazing the implications of the Bible that 
you know, the meaning and then the implication and then the significance. So the implications of the scripture that we never had to look at or point out in the past that in our very, um, strange is not the right word, but uh, sinful and wayward day and age that you would have to say. But I think it is important to note in our time that Jesus is not born without gender. He is born as a son. He is born as a man. And he is a man that will go and be a spiritual leader of his people. He will be the head of his church. He is Christ, the head of the church, which will come beyond him and be uh, after him under shepherds that will lead under his leadership in the church. And so Jesus will be born a son, as a man. And in the third category, the third thing to point out about Joseph's dream is this name to be given to this son. You will name him Jesus. You will call him Jesus. The name Jesus rightly summarizes what Jesus' life will be about because the name Jesus means Savior. It is similar to the root of Joshua in the Old Testament. Savior pointing to his office and his purpose. This is what this child that will be born to you, this miraculous birth, he will be born as a Savior to his people. Saving them from what? Saving them from the guilt of sin. Jesus will come as a substitution by his own life and the the shedding of his own blood to save us from the guilt of our sin. Jesus will come to save us from the dominion of sin, meaning breaking the enslaving power of sin over us, coming with himself to the power of regeneration, to be able to give a new heart, take someone who is dead in their soul and enslaved to sins and give them a new heart and a new way of living and a new life that they might be freed from sin to live for the Lord God. Third, he will come saving us from the consequences of our sins. We all live under the damnation of our sins prior to the salvation of Jesus Christ. We talked some last week about heaven and about what it is to pass from death into life. And Jesus is always pointing toward eternal life, an inheritance given to us by Jesus Christ, that one day those who believe and know Jesus Christ might stand with the righteous in glory. And this is hope. We are saved from the guilt of sin. We're saved from the dominion of sin. We're saved from the consequences of sin because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so you will call his name Jesus. This is the sweetest name in all of the world. It is the most beautiful name that we will ever hear. It is by the name of Jesus that we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. We rejoice in Jesus' name. May Jesus be praised. Hallelujah to Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we are in need of mercy, we call out to Jesus. In time of great desperate need, we call out to Jesus. It is the name upon which all of our hopes rest. And I want you to see it as a divine name, a name that was given to Jesus. This angel, you will call his name Jesus. This is not arbitrary. And I want to note something here before we go beyond this, that you should never, ever blaspheme the beautiful name of Jesus. You should never use the name of Jesus Christ as a curse, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. 
If you are a person that is, as so many in our day and age, that curse and swear using the name of Jesus Christ, I would call upon you to repent of your sins and ask God to forgive you for using this beautiful name in a way that it should never be used. And call out to Jesus for forgiveness, that he might change your heart and make you new, that you would speak in a different way. And instead of cursing his name, that you might sing praises to his name and glorify his name. I would just rejoice over this past year of a, of a friend of mine that came to salvation. And he would be the first to tell you that he was one of the greatest profaners of the name of Jesus Christ that I have ever been around in my life. And when he came to salvation, one of the first things that changed about his life is he stopped using the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. And it was removed from his vocabulary, and he became a different man and spoke of Jesus in a different way. And so this is very, very important. Let us uphold and honor the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this is one great name from this passage. And from this vision, from this dream, there's another name here, though. We're going to skip ahead just a little bit to verse 23 in this prophecy from Isaiah, where the name of Jesus, a description, Emmanuel, God with us. You will call his name Emmanuel. And so Jesus and Emmanuel, these two names for God, Emmanuel, God with us, points to the imminence of God. The Old Testament is very much about the, the transcendence of God or God being separated from us, being high and exalted above us or separated from us. We have much about the holiness of God. We have Mount Sinai, God displaying himself in great burning fire and power and awe and lightning and the people backing up because they're terrified of what is happening we have the Lord God displaying himself as a pillar of fire and the Shekinah glory. And we, we have this uh, prescribed situation of the tabernacle and then the temple where there are all these degrees of separation from the people and from God. Where the Ark of the Covenant is behind this most holy place that can only be visited one time a year by the high priest. And when they move this Ark, it must be moved with these long poles to make sure that no one ever touches it. And the transcendence of God is greatly emphasized in the Old Testament. But in the messianic coming of Jesus Christ, his eminence is emphasized. The nearness of God, God coming near to us in humanity that he might, as Paul writes, empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. And so the Lord God chooses to humble himself and come very near to us and is made Emmanuel, God with us. And the doctrine that encapsulates this is the idea of Jesus Christ being both truly God and truly man. He is both combined in one person. And it's a tension that we cannot grasp. As we read through the Gospels, we see both of these things happening. And we have to wrestle with how Jesus is truly God, but he is also truly man. But this is absolutely vital for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is to die in your stead and in mine, he must be truly man. But if he is to accomplish the salvation of God, he must be truly divine. And so he must be both things. And so as Savior and divine, Jesus came knowing the thoughts of those who were around him. 
He spoke with authority and had authority over all evil. He healed the sick by divine power and commanded the seas and created food. And he forgave sins, which people knew only God could do that. But he came saying, your sins are forgiven and giving peace. But as a man, he was weary and hungry and thirsty and wept and felt pain and lived a real life in this wicked, filthy world, just like you and I live in it. And he was spat upon and crucified on a cross in a very real way. And yet he was not two natures, but one, fully God and fully man. This is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, with us to save us from our sins. And a little bit about the names Jesus and Emmanuel. Well, the fourth thing I would like for us to see about this, this dream is what it says that Jesus will come to accomplish in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the work of Jesus Christ. If you're confused about what the work of Jesus is, be reminded of what the work of Jesus is. It is to save his people from their sins. This is the gospel good news. Jesus has not come to declare to you a way that you might live in order to save yourself. Jesus has come to save you by grace and mercy and love that he might get the glory for what he is doing to save you and work in your life. Jesus Christ has come to save his people from their sins. The preaching of Jesus revolved around repentance and faith, us recognizing the own sinfulness of our lives and, and turning away from that sinfulness and believing the words that he has to say. And so I ask you this morning, I've said a whole lot here this morning. I have no idea what's rolling around in your heart. But some of you rejoice in what I have said this morning. You believe these things and you know that in it you will have life both now and forever. And you rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins that you don't have to walk out of this place today burdened down by the guilt of all that you have done. But that you can cast that on Jesus that you might walk out of here in peace and life. Others of you are very skeptical and others of you just don't believe what I'm saying at all. You're sorry that you got drugged here today and you're ready to leave. But salvation comes by faith. You cannot receive the salvation of Jesus Christ if you do not believe who he is and what he is doing. And so Jesus Christ came preaching repentance and faith. Well, in verse 22, the, the dream goes on. And the angel says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The angel says that these things are not new, but a fulfillment of prophecy from long ago. This specific prophecy is from the book of Isaiah or from the prophet Isaiah, from chapter 7, verse 14. And the Lord has been at work since before the foundations of the world to glorify himself in the process of salvation that he is laying out. Through the salvation of sinners, from beforehand, he knew what he was to do. And this is the first 
of hundreds of fulfillments of prophecy that will happen in the life of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is specifically related to this. It specifically points out over and over and over Old Testament prophecies and how those prophecies are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And so Jesus goes about this life, which is so fascinating, fulfilling each and every one of these prophecies. He's not in a hurry. He never rehearses any of this stuff. It is not a life of mathematical or mechanical calculation where he's trying, all right, I got to aim to hit this one right here, and then I'm going to aim and I'm going to hit that one right there. And nothing like that is about the life of Jesus. He goes through living it joyfully, gladly, but in the midst of his living, his beautiful, perfect life, Jesus fulfills all righteousness and fulfills all the will of the Father until his last breath on the cross where he says, it is finished. What was finished? The will of God for his life as Savior was finished. He had accomplished everything that was laid out for him to accomplish, everything that was spoken beforehand, that people were watching and people were looking for these things to be fulfilled. And they find them all fulfilled in Jesus Christ because his life was perfect for he was the Son of God. And so I was reminded again yesterday of how astonishing this reality is, the fulfillment of all prophecy in Jesus Christ. I was reading a book uh, about risk by General Stanley McChrystal. He was the U.S. commander of the Joint Special Forces Operation Command for the early part of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And he's writing in there about a series of events which many of you are familiar with from April 1980. And it had to do with the attempt, the failed attempt, to negotiate with Iranian radicals to free uh, 53 hostages that were being held in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. And so in an effort to release these people from these hostages from the, uh, their situation, the U.S. Joint Chiefs decided to develop a special operation rescue called Operation Eagle Claw. And Operation Eagle Claw was uh, led by Major General James Vaught, and served as the overall mission commander. And it was a very complex plan. And it revolved around eight helicopters launching from the carrier Nimitz out of this, the Gulf of Amman. 600 miles they were to fly into the desert uh, southeast of Tehran. And in the desert they were to rally with C-130 cargo planes and cross-load equipment and people and re, uh, refuel the helicopters. And from there, they were going to fly to a, a hide site just south of Tehran where they were going to hide for 12 hours and stage and then go in and take over the embassy, free the hostages. And then they were going to go to a soccer stadium, take over the national soccer stadium, land the helicopters there, exfil everyone to another site a few hundred miles away, fly in C-130s again, refuel, cross-load people, and then fly out. And that was supposed to be simple. That, uh, it's, it's hard to look at that and think, but it was briefed to President Carter, and Major General Vault briefed it as an 85% success rate with some casualties in this situation. Um, as you know, or as you may not know, they never made it past the first checkpoint of Desert One. In the desert, there was a tragedy where... Uh, planes and helicopters caught on fire, eight Marines lost their lives, and it was one of the worst uh, operations that ever happened in U.S. military history. 
McChrystal points out in the book that Vaught radically miscalculated his risk. He, even if you up it from 85% to 90%, the problem is that there are many distinct stages in this operation. And if you gave it a 90% success rate for every single stage, when you multiply each stage by each stage by each stage by each stage, it continues to go down. If you take 0.9 times 0.9 times 0.9 times 0.9 for 10 times, you end up with a, an actual 35% uh, success possibility, which is totally unacceptable. Well, here's my point in telling this story. My point is this. Jesus came to save his elect people from their sins. And with a long list of prophetic steps to prove his authenticity and who he was. Not with 10 steps over a series of days, but hundreds of steps over a series of years. And the probability of Jesus in any human way being able to fulfill all these things is zero. There's no way that a person in and of their own working could ever cause all of this to work out. We couldn't, in all of our rehearsals and millions of dollars in thinking, could not get past one step of a complicated operation. There is no way that the work of Jesus Christ is a work of humanity. And that's the whole purpose. It was meant to be so radically complicated that you could never look at the life of Jesus and say, that's a work of man. You can't. You have to go back to the, the theologians that we talked about earlier that say, no, we just got to cut out most of the life of Jesus in order to get to something that we can wrap our minds around. Because as it stands, this has to be a divine work. That's exactly the purpose, is that it is a divine work that could never have been accomplished by human beings. Instead, Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be and exactly who the angel said that he was. He was Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, sovereign over all the affairs of the world. And so we end with verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. It's a very simple statement. He woke up and he believed what was said to him. And then he went and acted on it. And this is the same calling that you and I have. You hear, you read the word of the Lord, you're confronted by things that shake you up and unsettle you and press you beyond where you are. And I urge you to walk in the manner that Joseph did. Walk out of this place and believe what you have heard and then go and obey. Go and act and live for the Lord as Joseph did, not sure of what was going to happen in the next steps of this thing. He only gave him the very next few steps, and he walked in those next steps, and then the next steps, and then the next steps, which is called walking by faith. And so this Christmas, I urge you to exalt Jesus as Lord and to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together Thank you so much for this glorious passage that points us to the supernatural work of God in the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made us and that you love us and that you did not leave us to die in our sins, but that you sent a Savior that would glorify himself in dying as a substitute for us upon the cross. And we pray, Father, this morning that you would be at work in our midst and that you would strengthen our faith to believe in you this morning. 
and that we would hear these words from the scripture and that we would know that they are true and that you would strengthen us to go out from this place as did Joseph and to obey the things that you have called us to do. Lord, help us to live as light and darkness. Help us to not be ashamed of the supernatural nature of God in a very secular day that is hardening ever more secular every day. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and be at work, that you might be glorified in the salvation that you are working in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.